Hey everybody, welcome to Sundays on the East End. This is Alex Sokolow. Uh, my partner in crime, Bridget Leroy, is uh, not here this week. I am flying solo. Bridget is up in Albany this uh, weekend at the New York Press Association, where she and uh, Jessica Mackin-Cipro won first place in the coverage of the arts for the 2018 Better Newspaper Contest at the independence so congratulations bridget hope you're having a good time i am really excited i've never done this solo before uh so we'll see how that goes but i'm i'm really excited for uh my slash our guest this weekend who i'm going to bring on and introduce in a second james henry who's a sag harbor resident and a uh economist uh who uh i won't i won't do justice to to his work but who is fighting the really good fight uh, that affects all of us. I would like to start by talking about trust, which is something that I certainly, as I was growing up as a kid, thought was as simple as somebody does something they say they're going to do, and maybe it should be that. But uh, as, as I've been thinking about uh, James coming on, and I've been thinking about talking about economics, which is really not my forte, I was thinking, like, it took me way well into my adult life to really understand the idea that money is just trust and that money doesn't really exist. And if it exists in dollar form, or if it exists in euro form, if it exists in paper form, that, that's an extension, that's a physical manifestation of this bigger concept of trust. That's not something I knew growing up, and that's not something that uh, I was fed uh, in all the schooling I had and in all of the uh, media I absorbed and all the books I read. And it really, really was like this, this um, what I would say is it's like almost this happy, blind, naive way of approaching life. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to pay my bills. I'm going to pay my taxes. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do all of these things. And why? Because that's what you're supposed to do. There's a huge level of trust in that statement. And, um, and yet, as I've gone through my life and I've started to uh, educate myself and, and see the world, maybe through the abstraction uh, of a more advanced thinkers than I, I am, I am now convinced that trust is everything, but it's, it's not what I think it is. It's not what I think most people think it is when it comes to the lives we live. And it's certainly, in the time we're living in right now, is something that uh, is in play on a daily level from uh, the, the smallest decisions we make every day to the largest decisions we make in our lives. So um, that's kind of something that I think we, we might be talking about. I know that uh, James is he's the first guest that we've had on the show who gave us homework, uh, which was awesome. Uh, he sent uh, a miss of an email exchange he had with one of his students at Yale, where he, he teaches this semester, talking about offshore havens. And, and really, uh, if, I, if I remember it correctly, kind of like what, what really jumped out to me was the, um, the difficulty of even, even being able to establish how much money is being 
hidden offshore is being put into these havens. The term kleptocracy is really kind of what uh, James, a lot of his work is about. And uh, and really, it's it's kind of like we're all doing our part. We're all like waking up in the morning and going through our days. But there's this much bigger conversation happening in the world now. And it's a conversation of people not paying their fair share. And I think it can it, it can kind of reduce to that. Last week we had on a tick lady. This week we're going to be talking about different bloodsuckers, <laughs> oligarchs, and nation states that are are become home and harbor to uh, money that that should be taxed uh, and and go back into the uh, yeah. into the system. So uh, again, you're listening to Sundays on the East End. We are broadcasting live on tape from Estia's little kitchen. Colin Ambrose has been nice enough to let us uh, record out of here for a little bit. I will tell you, Colin, the food here is amazing. Uh, the price fixed dinner's great. Bridget usually handles all that kind of stuff. I'll just tell you, it's really good. I love Estia's, and I thank Colin for that. And now I'm going to get out of my own way so I don't sound dumber than I really am and introduce James. Welcome, James. Thank you so much for coming on. Good to be with you. Thank you. So I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of your bona fides. This is also the first time I've ever taken notes for, for a, a show. Uh, James is a senior fellow at Columbia University Center for Sustainable Investment. He's uh, a fellow of the Global Justice Fellow at Yale University, where he's also uh, teaching, uh, contributing editor to American Interest. An attorney uh, who's done work with the ACLU uh, has the, uh, is it the Sag Harbor Group? Sag Harbor Group, yeah. Uh, which, uh, is, it's a strategy consulting firm, works for private clients on all kinds of technology issues. Okay. Um, is a Edward R. Murrow, excuse me, fellow at Tufts. Yeah. And really, like, uh, unbelievably smart guy. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, I, I will take the credits, uh, but uh, as usual, you know, trust is uh, is a great topic, I think, for, for an economist to worry about. You, we have all these uh, institutions that we are used to uh, regarding as market-based institutions where people are exchanging value back and forth. And there's a lot of skepticism uh, among kind of the free market types in our society, which is uh, so-called theoclassical economics, uh, you know, that, uh, that public institutions or uh, kind of non-market institutions can really establish uh, uh, a kind of a basis for society. But when we look at trust, trust is something that if you have to pay for it, it automatically goes away. Right, uh, And the core institution in our society, perhaps, is money in a capitalist society. And money is entirely based on the expectation that when you go to the grocery store, they're going to accept the dollars that you give. Um, the dollar value we've seen appreciate recently, it's relative to other currencies in the world economy. It's Why all is that? relative, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's all relative. It's because Ameri fundamentally the world has greater confidence in American institutions uh, even as, as troubled as they are at the moment uh, than they do in their own institution. They want to own dollars. And so dollar assets, it's all about confidence, expectations, trust. In all right, so, so I'm going to jump. I'm going to yeah. bounce around. I'm not a linear thinker, so I'm going to bounce around. Yeah. Is that one of the reasons, this exuberance? Like everybody always talks about in America, like that, you know, just keep shopping, just keep buying, just be exuberant. Trust the future. The future is going to give you more. Well, they say, you know, uh, Pity the poor bourgeoisie because they always live in the future. They're never quite satisfied. They're never quite secure. 
the aristocracy lives in the past, uh, you know, and they're they're basically proud of their history. Uh, working class people are working day to day. They're not having uh, a lot to look forward to, paycheck to paycheck. Um, so pity the poor uh, oligarch who is, uh, you know, constantly worried about losing his fortune one way or another and seeing his wealth fluctuate from day to day. That's a little, little bit superficial. But right. It's, no, but, but it's, it's not. A, like, you know, there, I, there is a whole group of Americans who live, despite their material wealth, they're, they're fundamentally uh, worried and anxious about the future. And we have a lot of things to be anxious about. But, no. but, but our system also sells fear as part of consumption. So, so a natural cycle is we're going to scare you to buy something. We're going to scare you, and then you'll consume and feel better. And you're not, you're not nearly as good as your neighbor who just bought the latest you know, version of something. And uh, you're sort of constantly comparing yourself uh, to figure out how good you are. So, right. So, so, I mean, again, there's so much in my mind is swirling. There's so many, yeah. so many things to talk about. But let, let's, let's, you know, in, in this first section, all right, we're starting with this kind of concept. Let's talk about economists, right? Because right. one of the things, and I'm going to not get the quote exactly right, but 50 economists, 50 different theories of the economy. How does one gravitate towards becoming an economist? And how, like, where did your philosophy kind of stem from? Well, I got started by looking at what I call investigative economics. I mean, I like to focus on real-world puzzles. Uh, one of the first articles I wrote about 40 years ago was, why are there all these $100 bills in circulation? You know, who has a $100 bill? This is 1976, right. when they were pretty rare. And it turned out, when we looked at it closely, we figured out a lot of the $100 bills were held offshore or they were facilitating drug traffic. You know, the Colombians right. were turning in, uh, uh, selling cocaine in, in Florida and then uh, exchanging it for cash. So we had basically, with, by supplying the world with all these large bills, uh, we were facilitating underground economic activity that was off the radar and out, you know, not taxed, facilitating organized crime. So, you know, that's an example of a concrete problem um, that got me interested in an economic issue, but on right. only because the, the issue was, was glaring there to begin with. And I moved on from there to look at where the money went that was loaned to all developing countries in the 70s and 80s. The, World put in more than and, and who's loaning the money? Let's let's. These are the Western banks basically recycling oil dollars after okay. the 1973 oil price hike. Uh, they had all this money in, in, in on hand and they had to lend it out. They figured out that places like Brazil and Mexico and Venezuela and the Philippines weren't looking too carefully at where the loans would be spent, but would, you know, in the case of Marcos in the Philippines. Uh, his central bank borrowed nearly $10 billion. Well, a lady's got to have and, her shoes. <laughs> and she, they transferred it when I audited the central bank after the regime fell in the late 80s. We found that he had transferred it all to Switzerland. You know, wow. So the country was stuck with the, with the loans. Okay, so, sorry, so yeah. let, let's, again, keep it like simple building blocks. Yeah. Before Christopher Columbus in landed in 1491 or two globalization was regional yeah then all of a sudden Local. these trade routes right these trade routes start and globalization the age of globalization commences right. but until computers and technology and if, if you will I hope I don't misuse the word the arbitrage of kind of like where banks like SNL banks in the 80s can go from we have to give a loan in a very specific place to we can play right. around the world right it, with this globalization of technology and of information it just becomes this this like this ripe stew for corruption 
Yeah, exactly. You have the banks basically are not regulated very well across borders, so their international activities have always been kind of open season. And uh, in you know in this period in the '70s when they were flush with cash. They were throwing money at these dictators and throwing money at these lousy regimes without really caring about the consequences. And then they got bailed out by the Federal Reserve later on when the countries couldn't pay back. The countries got stuck with the loans. They went into deep recessions. But that's an example of the first stage of the new wave of globalization that but, took but place. But where we are now, place. I mean, like the first dominoes that fell in, in the early 70s when the stock market became automated. Yeah. In the 80s, when again the laws changed as far as SNL loans, and, and right. now where everybody that, in, the, that in the late 90s, there was a new wave of deregulation under the Clinton administration and then under Bush too. Uh, you had basically the gloves came off with respect to regulating Wall Street, and so they went hog wild with doing the same things they had been doing. Uh, internationally with developing countries, they're doing that in the mortgage market in the United States. Enormous amounts of mortgage fraud, uh, you know, sort of uh, rigging of the interest rate system. LIBOR was rigged. Uh, no bankers were prosecuted for this. They were basically uh, given a pass by yeah, Democrats and Republicans alike. This, Nobody this, went to jail. This is a great place to maybe stop for our first yeah. interlude. Um, but when we come back, I want to talk about this because I, I have felt for since 2008 that the need for the public theater of crime and punishment of who was responsible for the global collapse in 2008 it, it, that never got satisfied. You never saw the tar and feathers moment that made you feel the trust again might be there. And we will be back after a little interlude. I've learned to take every view. You know, I've memorized Lerner and Golden. I feel like I'm almost a Jew. But when it comes to times like Korea, there's no one more red, white, and blue. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. We are back Sundays on the East End. Alex Sokolow here. Bridget uh, Leroy is uh, up at a conference in Albany. There's a pun in there somewhere. And uh, our guest today is uh, economist James Henry. Um, we are broadcasting from Estia's. Little Kitchen in Sag Harbor. Okay, so James, where we left off was kind of talking about the, we're in a restaurant, so the, the, the meal of corruption and bullshit that was kind of prepared <laughs> in the 90s that we're all eating now. Yeah, I mean, the, the wave of globalization and the, so the optimism about all the glories of neoliberal uh, economics and how deregulating the banks and Wall Street would, would make us all rich, um, you know, really came a cropper in 2008 when you had... Uh, Countries like Iceland, their entire banking system collapsed. Uh, in the United States, we had uh, a huge financial crisis. It cost $20 trillion. Uh, we spent a trillion dollars bailing out the largest banks in the world. And, and, um, and, and at the end of the day, it turned out that they were all serial criminal organizations. They had been engaged. And I, I actually itemized 14 different categories of financial crimes that the top 22 banks in the world were involved wow. in from 2000 to 2016. And can, they, you, can you give a smattering? Can yeah, I mean, uh, facilitating tax dodging by wealthy uh, taxpayers, um, mortgage fraud, bribery, rigging LIBOR, the world interest rate market, rigging energy prices, illegal trading, 
right uh, and sanctions busting the list goes on and on and, and when we were and when we were in our interlude you, you mentioned the Obama administration and I, I could say and again I'm I'm a Democrat I'm I'm somebody who, right. who you know who believes in oversight and believes in systems being uh, working I guess mm -hmm. um, but one of the things about the Obama presidency that that always was a a stick in my side was was the Goldman Sachs influence of his financial policy. Um, well, you have you know what happened was that you basically under under George Bush one uh, Poppy back in the late '80s you had the SNL crisis. Uh, he went after three thousand bankers. Uh, he put eight hundred of them in jail. And under Obama, you had a much bigger financial crisis happen. Nobody went to jail. No banks lost their licenses. Uh, they had $300 billion of fines, but they just passed them all off to their customers. And all of these payments of fines came like very late, like after eight years. And, of and how is that possible? Of this. Well, it just reflects the growing financial influence of the financial services in industry. You have, you know, 3,000 tax uh, lobbyists in Washington. You have untold numbers of banking and insurance lobby uh, lobbyists in Washington and you have the campaign finance of laws have changed so both parties really are bankster parties in the sense that they're not going to be tough on Wall Street which was kind of was it was that what Ralph Nader was running well, on back Nader in the day? and I went to uh, Credit Suisse was one of the biggest banks involved in this in 19 in 2014 under the Obama administration they got a 2.6 billion dollar fine uh, which was tax deductible, by the way. Uh, they were helping wealthy Americans. They set up a banking unit with 600 private bankers calling on wealthy Americans secretly and taking their money offshore, avoiding taxes on $40 billion of income. Um, they got, you know, they were allowed to continue to, uh, uh, to operate and to advise U.S. pension funds. And we went to the Department of Labor and said, look, it's outrageous to have this corporate felon uh, allowed to continue to advise U.S. pension, pension funds, the Department of Labor said, we're going to give them a waiver. The person who represented them at the hearings, Credit Suisse at the hearings, is the current head of the FBI, Christopher Wray. Yeah, all right. So, so I so. mean, there's just, you know, the, the, the revolving door is part of the story. Part of the story is that they were worried about penalizing the banks when they were just recovering in the financial crisis. But fundamentally, uh, there has been impunity for a whole lot of, really serious financial crimes committed by the largest financial institutions of the country, and it's a, it's a problem for both parties. Trump, if anything, has been worse, but Obama was pretty bad. Well, well, and again, and this is the thing, is that Donald Trump, and this is, everybody has their opinion, here's my opinion. Mm. My opinion, is, you know, I'm not gonna talk about his intellect, I'm not gonna talk about his personality, mm. I'm gonna say this. Uh, he's really good at putting his name on dirty money and taking his slice. That's my opinion of him. Well, he's been able to distribute a lot of the uh, the lucre to the largest companies in the world. I mean, the $2.6 trillion of offshore money that U.S. multinationals had accumulated by December of 2017, he gave them a tax break on repatriating that money. Uh, that's yeah, so it's just laundering. Unbelievable. I mean, they should have, a lot of the money to begin with had been parked offshore because they were transferring intellectual property to places like Ireland. Apple had accumulated two hundred and fifty billion. I billion. want to talk to you about Apple. Yeah. Because, all right, let me just, all right, let me just finish this. Point. Okay, <laughs> Apple. About half the money they accumulated offshore was a case of where they had basically paid themselves royalties, tax-free, on intellectual property and software that they had developed in the U.S. and then transferred oh, to a little company in Ireland. That's so aggravating. So at the end of two thousand seventeen, U.S. multinationals as a whole 
had about $2.6 trillion offshore they'd never been taxed on. Trump said, okay, bring it back. You can pay 15.5% tax on it, but you also get eight years to pay the tax. You don't actually have to bring the money back. And going forward, there's a territorial tax. So if you leave it offshore and just pay the tax over eight years with no interest charge, so w calculating it all out, that's about an $800 billion gift. It's a gift. To the largest it's a kiss. Companies. It's a yeah. kiss. But like, like once, again, Apple, like I, yeah. I first, uh, like a lot of probably laymen, you know, I read an article any number of years ago about how Apple has a P.O. box in Nevada and then they have the, their money in Ireland and all this yeah. stuff. And, and as an American, it's hard not to get really angry that these corporations don't pay their share of taxes. Well, Ireland discovered that they could set up an Irish company um, under Irish law. Uh, you are taxable where the management is. Well, the management for Apple is in California. Under U.S. law, you're taxable where the company's set up. So this Irish subsidiary that's handling 65% of Apple's worldwide profits is taxable nowhere. It's a citizen of nowhere for tax purposes. Right. And so this is like, I mean, again, this is this is the big con right here. Yeah, this you is know? the big con. And, and it, you know, we can talk about Trump's financial chicanery, and there has been a lot of that. But I'd say that, you know, the biggest financial crimes in the country are going on in plain view and their quasi-legal activities. And, and let me ask you, right, because the, the will of the public ultimately dictates, we all get the government we deserve, I guess, is what I'm going to say, is, is how, how come this isn't the narrative? Well, because, you know, first of all, it's complicated. I'm I'm an economist, a lawyer. You're a fellow, by the way. I've spent 40 years I doing this. I think you're a really thing. good fellow. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but tell me, what but, is it? What, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're but, a fellow in a but, lot of places. But the fact is that there's a, yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, probably too many places. But the the issue is education. You know, yeah. kids come in, in this high school these days. They don't get any of this in civics class. They're not being taught economics, really, in in high school. And they're not being taught a critical perspective on the way the world works. So, and, but is that part of like the you know it's public high school gets funded by federal money and this and that, and so they dictate the curriculum? And I don't think it's a conscious conspiracy. I just think that we've let it slide, and you know, people don't know what they don't know. So, there's a huge opportunity to educate people about these issues when you go out and engage with them and, and have. Discussions with real people on yeah. these issues. It almost reminds me. I, I think in movies a lot. It almost reminds me of how in Sleeper, in the Woody Allen comedy, uh, how in the future they had these orbs that you would just kind of like rub the orb and yeah. get get stoned or get uh, have ecstasy or like whatever. Like the Saudi king and, and the Trump. Basically, Trump like, like that one exactly, right? That orb, right. But that, that but, but, yeah. but you know, we have it with our phones. We have it with all of the entertainment. Yeah. Look, I'm a screenwriter. I write movies. It's diversion. I know it has no inherent worth it has uh, situational worth I guess depending on who you well back in the 1890s we had another kind of golden era you know when they had the the, 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 the first real era of uh, the trusts and age of yeah. trusts and there was a progressive word. movement that came out of that you know there was there was yeah. a, there were people holding Chautauquas around the country and meeting with people educating them organizing labor the Democratic Party I think and progressive forces in general have lost touch with the working class specifically, and I think which which got talked about after the last uh, presidential election. But yeah. but in your mind, how would you extrapolate on that? Like, well, I just say that we we need to get back in touch with educating ordinary Americans about what's really going on in the world, 
And okay, so let's, what's, a, going, so what's a, really going on in the a, world? As opposed, to Wall, as, on, a, as opposed to spending a lot of time doing private fundraisers with Wall Street Let's uh, put it on the table. Where are your investigations right now? What's going on in the world? What should we actually be knowing? Well, I think one thing we have to be concerned about is the fact that you know, the United States has become a huge tax haven. It's become a huge uh, destination haven for kleptocrats around the world. And from, define, define a kleptocrat. Kleptocrat is basically public officials who are ripping off their governments figuring out ways to do that. Good cases, you know, an example of uh, uh, the uh, former president of Angola basically put his son in charge of a $5 billion sovereign wealth fund, and he proceeded to park that in, in Switzerland and milk the money and uh, put it offshore. Right. And But is that, that's just a modern version of uh, the King of France with that with the fellow law that was making his own money and ended up... Yeah, I mean, Jefferson if, took if advantage the King of, the, Fran if the uh, King of France... Louisiana Purses, yeah. If the King of France had felt threatened the way the Russian Garks feel threatened yeah. at home, he would have moved his money elsewhere. So um, what's happened with the, the creation of all this wealth in places like China and Russia, which are basically kind of lawless economies at some level, you can't really trust the rule of law or the independence of the courts in those places. Uh, the irony is that the thieves need to have a place like the United States that has independent judiciary, that has the rule of law, to, hide, to protect their stolen assets, right. so they bring them here. So one of the one of the things we're concerned about is is we we really need to uh, be concerned about the fact that when the money's moving here, the culture is also moving here. Uh, the anti-democratic values, the lack of instant uh, interest in transparency, and the That's rule of law. That's a huge and, thing. And, I think that we should also really be talking about is transparency. You know, like. I, I always, uh, when I was a kid, uh, and it's a whole nother story, uh, I went to Vegas a lot with my family on a junket, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things about Vegas I got to see from a kid's point of view and then even as an adult is they have, they have this like Darwinian system of watching every transaction because the people in charge want to make sure they get their money. Right. So everybody's watching. There's always five sets of eyes on every transaction. So I saw that and I think, well, that's probably the best model because that's the model they developed that works. Well, we, we could do that. There's a company called Cargometrics, which does that for a hedge fund with respect to shipping transactions. We could do the same thing with money. Uh, but, you know, there are some powerful interests that are, have a strong stake in keeping it non-transparent. So. We're used to talking about tax havens as being offshore, but in fact, a lot of the tax havens, the biggest ones in the, in the world, havens in general, have moved onshore. There are places like Delaware, Nevada, yes. Wyoming. I read your article I, I, about Delaware. Like, you know, yeah. I, this is something that like, was news to me, you know, that, that the state of Delaware has actually become a huge tax haven. Well, there's no beneficial ownership registry. We don't know who owns these companies. When I asked the head of Mossack Fonseca, who was the Panama Papers law firm that got exposed, where he held his money, he said, oh, I keep it in Delaware. You know, nobody will ever find it there. There's two million corporations and nobody knows who's, who owns them. So we basically created this gigantic uh, way of owning assets like real estate without knowing who's r the real owner. And so an enormous share of you know, New York City, for example, is owned anonymously. Um, we proposed uh, an, an anonymous wealth tax, a sur surtax on the property tax, so that if you're an anonymous holder, you want to keep it secret, at least you have to pay for it. Because basically, 
that kind of privacy has become right. so, far too so cheap. So really moving away from income tax, moving away, moving to sales tax. To a wealth tax. Just like every transaction you get taxed on. To a wealth tax. I yeah. mean, I was with a group of uh, economists last week in, in uh, Copenhagen. We worry about how to finance climate change because developing countries are now facing a bill of $350 billion a year to be able to uh, continue to make any progress against climate change. And the world uh, richest countries are moving in the opposite direction in terms of helping them. So one proposal concretely is a 1% is a tax on billionaires, um, on the wealth of billionaires, which would be an annual tax. And they are now worth about $8 trillion. So that might raise you know, at least $80 billion. Right, well, we're going to take another break now. But this is, again, we're, I think there's a really good flow going on here. This is Alex Socolow. My guest uh, this week is James Henry. Uh, Sunday's on the East End with Alex Socolow and Bridget Leroy, who's up in Albany getting uh, feted or getting prizes or something. We are broadcasting from Estia's uh, little kitchen uh, in Sag Harbor. And uh, we'll be right back. Money. Money makes a world go around, a we are back Sundays on the East End. This is Alex Sokolow. Our guest this week is uh, James Henry, economist. And we're having a really nice conversation, but now it's time to kind of like get down and dirty. Let's talk about Trump and Mueller and Russia and money and what's really going on. Well, in December 2016, after the election, I wrote a, a piece uh, just to pull together as an economist uh, a perspective on what was really going on with Trump and his finances. Because I noticed that for all of the coverage of Trump during the campaign, the media had basically missed to a large extent the fact that a lot of Trump's financing during his rebirth from 2000 to 2010 had come from former Soviet Union, Russian uh, uh, sources, oligarchs, and also from Deutsche Bank, which has a lot of Russian connections. Yeah, they, and, the, and the reason was that Trump had basically gone bankrupt four to six times, depending on how you count, during the 90s. No U.S. bank would lend to him. So after the year 2000, um, he was able to tap into the fact that there was an enormous amount of this oligarch money pouring out of Russia. Uh, because of the terrible instability there. All the Russian oligarchs, basically, uh, Russia had privatized 150,000 state-owned companies for a grand total of $9.8 billion to 25 or 30 people uh, in the 90s under Yeltsin. Uh, they had been loaned the money, basically by the IMF and the World Bank, by right. way of the Russian Central Bank, to buy those companies, and so they ended up with this enormous concentration of private wealth. Uh, all those people felt insecure, obviously, and they wanted to get their money out. So they started investing in the United States, in, in particular in the UK as well, um, and in Switzerland, and uh, Donald Trump was one of the beneficiaries of that. At the same time, you had Putin rising to power in reaction to that kind of travesty that had gone on in the Russian transition. So you actually, in a way, this failed Russian transition after mm -hmm. the fall of the wall basically 
laid the foundations for both Putin and for Donald Trump. And right. Trump went on to finance things like the Trump Soho, his big uh, project in in uh, Manhattan, four hundred million dollar project with the help of a Russian mobster, Felix Sater. Uh, he, uh, his Toronto Tower in Toronto was the tallest building in Canada that was financed with another uh, Russian oligarch. Um, his and, projects and, and, in Azerbaijan, in, you know, in Florida, in Panama, lots of dirty money involved in these projects, many of when, most of which went belly up and were not successful. But, right, but, but much like uh, every movie that's ever uh, been made, you create a shell company it's not supposed to make a profit. Everybody's going to take theirs. And then when it goes belly up, everybody's gone on to the next one. Well, there's a lot of money laundering involved in this. But when we talk about the 2016 election, the, a lot of the attention has been focused in the Mueller investigation was, was there actual collusion? Was, was Trump a kind of mole? Was he Putin's uh, puppet? Um, and what I've argued is that, you know, well, there may have been uh, a lot of Russian assistance to the election of Trump, and I think there was, but as we've seen from the latest round of the Mueller investigation, they haven't been able to prove the kind of ironclad conspiracy. But what there is undeniable is this financial crime, which went on beforehand. The and that's being handled in New York. The financing right? of Trump. And, well, that, we hope so. We don't really know. I mean, that's one of the problems. But I, I think it's fair to say that the Democratic Congress is kind of held back and not led the way in terms of investigating these financial crimes. Because uh, it's, like, it's like I'm shocked there's gambling at Rick's, right? Yeah, I mean, like right, exactly. So um, I don't know whether the American people are upset about this. I mean, I think they're upset about their own financial crisis. I, I don't think they are. <laughs> but again, that goes to like, you know, we're all kicking the tires when there's a problem with the engine, you know, like we have a president who's a mobster. He's not a mole. Right. And, and, and you know, what's funny is it's like for, for, for a couple of centuries now, the peaceful transference of power, for me, one of the like the big invisible aspects of it is that everybody that goes to work in Washington, including the president, kind of knows when they leave they're going to get paid. So they kind of know, like part of the quid pro quo, the Obamas, the Clintons, the Bushes, everybody, the Reagan, everybody, we're going to get paid. What I've noticed, just in my own eyes, is that Trump is getting paid while he's in the office. And that's actually like he's broken that like tacit agreement. That's know? a little bit different. You know, yeah, he's breaking the, uh, the, the rules The emollients there. clause. Uh, uh, but, I, you know, you're, you're quite right that, you know, there's a whole lot of uh, uh, whole industry of people who are doing the revolving door thing with law firms and accounting firms and, and, and Congress. Um, and which, that transcends way, which, both parties. I was going to say, which, by the way, like, like uh, again, not speaking anything about Hillary Clinton's policies, not speaking anything about her being, not speaking anything about that. The thing that always rankled me about her run in 2016 was that she was breaking that same kind of concept to me. She had gotten out, gotten paid, and now she wanted to get back in. And that always felt a little dirty to me. Well, there's a lot of things to say about that, but I, I think, you know, it didn't help that she was spending more time with Wall Street, with Goldman Sachs, with those folks, even though in retrospect, I mean, Trump had far more golden people in his administration writing the tax laws. Um, I think she missed an opportunity to basically say, you know, here's what I'm going to do for the for yeah. the working class in America, and this is going to how, but, you know. But she's not in power, so let's, let's stay no, with the guy that's in, in power, right? I and, think the next the time mobster, around. The mobster in chief. The next time around, we need to have candidates who are going to be very specific about what they're going to do for uh, ordinary people in this country. I mean, whether it's health care, uh, it's going to be college debt relief, it's going to be climate change, uh, it's going to be having tough laws on banks that are, you know, cleaning up 
uh, right. Well, by acts. the way, in two thousand and eight, I remember talking to some of my friends that have gone into the financial sector, and I would say nobody's been charged, nobody's like doing yeah. time, and they, nobody's being led away in handcuffs. And their kind of de facto collective response was, "It's not Wall Street's problem; it's Washington's problem because the people who were in charge with oversight weren't doing their jobs." Well, Wall Street is not independent of Washington. You know, they yeah. have quite a few lobbyists down there. I think the banking. Uh, numbers that I put together show that they spent something like $6 billion from 1990 to 2005 on influence in Washington is an average of $2,500 per congressman per day wow. spent by the financial services industry on uh, buying But again, we're, we're, in theory, we're in a democracy. It's a republic, but it's a, we're in Well, it's theory. becoming an oligarchy, I right. would say. Uh, we're not there yet, and I think we have a chance to prevent it, but I'm, I'm very concerned about you know what... But you can see the tipping point. Well, I think Woodrow Wilson called this out when he was pushing for the for the progressive income tax in 1913. He said, you know, we're in danger of becoming a money a money driven society and a multi money culture where the elite rules. I mean, the United States now has 607 billionaires. Uh, the Forbes list just came out. And, and there's something so indecent about that. Like, again, yeah. I'm, I'm not anti-money. I'm spending yeah. my whole life trying yeah. to accumulate money for my own lifestyle. I'm, not, I'm a right. total capitalist on that level. Sure. But, you know, uh, the humorous Fran Leibowitz once said, you make a million dollars, you steal a hundred million dollars. Right. right. Just give back what you, what you stole. Forget yeah. about the, <laughs> the donations. No, I think that, you know, the billionaire class in this country has, uh, does a, a fair amount of uh, charity and and that's good a lot of it is tax induced uh but on balance they're taking more than they're, they're giving and, by and a long it shot like, and like, it's, we're not talking about capitalism versus socialism that's the that's the meme that the trump people want us to believe is, right. the, is the choice this is a this is about progressive uh fair taxation I, and i think the real fight in our lives and moving forward is the fight of moderation and extremism on any level. You have drug companies in this country that have 94% of their patents acquired by research from the federal government that the government paid for from soup to nuts and they're parking the, the patents offshore and paying themselves royalties tax-free uh, on all these profits that they and, and in the case of the Oxycontin, the Purdue folks, I mean, that's uh, yeah, they're that's, also destroying lives. So we have basically a corporate uh, a system that's kind of, I mean, it's it's fine when it works, but when it's 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 gotten really to be, I think, an excessive amount of corporate power in this country. Right. And, and so, and, when, and that was that. Tocqueville had that that line: uh, self-interest properly understood. Exactly. I mean, if you go back to the original Roman conception of liberty, yeah, um, it's not this just the state that can do us wrong. It's also private power. We have to worry about private power that's out of control as well as state power. And I think uh, that's, uh, that's the original conception right, of I liberalism. Wanna, and I want to go back to this. Like, like in my mind, and I try and simplify things always for, me, for myself to grasp right. it. If there were 100 people living on an island, and that was all there were, 100 people, and one person had 99% of the wealth or almost 100% of the wealth, the other 99 people on the island would look to that one person to say, you're going to protect us, you're going to feed us, you're going to do all these things. And if you don't, you're going to leave the island. Yeah, I mean, especially if that guy was wealthy mainly because uh, his grandfather started Walmart. I mean, there right. are there are you know there are eleven Pritzkers who uh, are wealthy only because uh, the grandfather started uh, Hyatt hotels. I mean, we we have uh, 
uh, created a, basically a kind of dynastic system in which people, there's no wealth tax, there's no estate and, tax. And yet, like in our DNA as America, is death to tyrants. Yeah. And, and the largest source of wealth is unrealized capital gains, and people are not taxed on those. That's why you need to go to a wealth tax. And let's, all right, and let's talk about that. We're going to take our last interlude. This is Alex Sokolow. This is Sundays on the East End. My guest today is James Henry. We're broadcasting from Estia's little kitchen. Kyle's the engineer. Bridget's back next week. And uh, we'll be right back. Hey, we're back. This is Alex Oclo, Sundays on the East End. Uh, we're broadcasting from Estia's Little Kitchen in Sag Harbor, talking with James Henry, economist uh, and uh, of the Sag Harbor Group currently, uh, a, a economist uh, that handles issues around the world of justice and, and uh, paying your fair share of taxes. We are in April. Uh, so this is a busy month for him and for all of us. Um, mm -hmm. So let's, let's jump, jump in. Let's talk about taxes and let's talk about... <laughs> well, one of the things I worry about a lot is uh, the uh, global tax haven industry. I'm a senior advisor to something called the Tax Justice Network, which is a global organization that was founded in the early 2000s, and we've been fighting tax havens. One of the things we've focused on is the fact that uh, there's now more than 115 countries around the world that basically specializing in financial secrecy and helping uh, very wealthy kleptocrats uh, and tax dodgers take their money offshore. And, and, and the basic game there is, yeah, I'm a country, and I'm like, I want this money here because it'll be somehow... I can make money on this money if it's here. So I'm going to set up a law that says, just come on in, park it here. Don't yeah. worry. Oh, so when I first started looking at this in the 70s, you had maybe 15 of these places. You know, they were traditional bolt holes like Switzerland and Panama. Um, but since then, under globalization, you've had an explosion of this activity. So you even have the United States developing a whole onshore tax haven industry, offering financial secrecy to people. And uh, the problem is that it basically ends up shifting the burden of taxation away from big companies and wealthy and people to middle class and the poor. You end up with sales taxes right. and payroll taxes and having to pay but for... Let, but let's talk about it again. Like yeah. it, it, taxation, right? It's, right. It's, it's, it's always been there in any form. Right. I mean, I think I remember reading about how in the agricultural revolution of about eight to 10,000 years ago, the reason why grain, which is now so part of our diet uh, economy, merged is because it was easiest to tax. So it kind of well, you've had you also have this tradition of only the peasants paying taxes, which was uh, you know the, the nobles before the, the Magna Carta, <laughs> the, few, the feudal lords. Of uh, you know their job was to fight wars and uh, right. and and uh, and rule. Um, but, but and we, we live we're in, kind of re reinventing that institution. Right, but we live. I mean, we live in a country that, that whose history. Uh, among the, the 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 genesis of America is this idea that America was being taxed by a corrupt parliament in England uh, for transactions within the United States right. at a point when and it's because of England's own corruption 
At we've always time. had a tax resistance uh, tradition, but we've also had a progressive taxation tradition. The United States was one of the first proponents of uh, progressive income tax, and we carry that around the planet. And we had uh, some of the highest rates on corporations back in the 1970s. The corporate rate was north of 70%. So, you know, you have had very uh, strong periods of prosperity even though you have high tax right. rates. And, and, and why, why is it that like the so-called blue states, the, the left-leaning states, get less money back from the government than the red, right-leaning states? Well, it's interesting. You see, you see a country, a state like Louisiana, which is, couldn't be redder in terms of voting for Trump. And, um, they pay into the federal government about $17 billion a year. Uh, they get back in terms of federal subsidies and welfare uh, checks for their... Uh, uh, aid to their poor people that they don't really help uh, more than $34 billion a year. So they're so, socialists. So it's basically, yeah, <laughs> in a sense, all of the red states are appropriately red. Right. I mean, except for maybe Texas. But, you know, states like Alabama and Arkansas, these are basically living on they the dole. Get, right. They can't pay them for themselves. If we really force them to be self-sufficient and to pay their own way, but they that, wouldn't but make that, it. But that goes as like, you know, where we our brains work to kind of like uh, uh, figure out the world. And we have all these labels. We have all these labels. You have yeah. red and blue, left and right. But... You know, well, I think that what we have is some states have a populations that have values that are rather different than those. And so New Yorkers understand the need to transfer income to people who are less fortunate. And I think that Alabama is on our list. But don't you think but, it also has to do with population? Because California and you even mentioned Texas, uh, they, the more populated a place is, the more room there is for other ideas to actually exist in policy. It is a kind of a deep. Uh, contradiction between the, the rhetoric that we get from the right about uh, low taxes and, and the reality of where the taxes are actually being paid. Yeah, no, we're but all... The, 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 yeah. the basic point is there's no evidence that all this tax cutting that's been going on since the Reagan era has actually stimulated economic growth. It hasn't. You know, the latest... Uh, we're seeing the, the Trump uh, claim that we would have a 5% GDP growth as a result of his tax yeah, cut. It's just but again, gone he's, up he's in smoke. He's a carnival barker. So he, he is a carny barker, but he has a lot of people in his uh, in his yeah. chorus. Yeah, but I remember, like, I remember when Reagan was was doing uh, espousing the whole trickle down theory. It, it, it led so to the like, don't pee down well, my neck and tell me it's raining. I'm all in favor of demonizing Trump, but he has an awful lot of people in the Republican Party and also some Democrats who've been willing to be, you know, the, the corporate. Uh, world is filled with people who have been very quiet uh, about yeah, yeah, accepting and, and, the benefits of uh, and, uh, and the Trump again, I'm going to say it, it's just like an average schmo. The, the thing yeah. that actually bothers me about the guy is I've never heard a single human being say I, my life was better for being his friend mm. other than people that make money. Yeah, well, that's... That, that's that's that's, that's that what may bothers be me. Where he's most comfortable, but, but, that, uh, but that, that's what bo that just bothers me. It's like you know, you, you like to think that there's somebody out there who's like, because I interacted with this person, I got my life is just better. Right. I, I don't want to suggest that the world would be a whole lot better off immediately if uh, Pence were president. I think that we have a problem with real interests that are, you know, that have to be combated, and that's. Uh, yeah, the part, the but part again, I, I, I'm not I'm not big into the pinata hitting right. of of anybody. Right, right. he's a, right. he's the president. I hope he does well for all of us. Like I, yeah. I'm not uh, that partisan. 
but I do think again it comes back to taxes and like well, this is where really we're focusing. I know that uh, a, a, an economist, uh, Rutger uh, Bregman from uh, Denmark, I think was speaking at Davos last month, and he just basically looked at all the billionaires in the room saying you have to start paying more taxes, and he became kind of a bit of a cause celeb and made the late night circuit. But it was that simple. The message was it was that simple. I mean, 26 billionaires own more wealth than the bottom half of the planet, so that's you know that doesn't seem that sustainable. Doesn't, that doesn't seem sustainable. But uh, I think the idea of focusing on specific policies that these uh, either party has to adopt uh, to address the growth of inequality in the, in the country and in the world um, and to encourage, uh, you know, I think, um, uh, some solutions to these problems that we're facing as opposed to just talking about individuals and personalities. I yeah, think that's and, the, and the again, like uh, politics and sports are both areas where I, I, when I was a kid, it was like, yeah, if I'm a Yankee fan, I can't like the Red Sox. And as, a, as an adult, um, I tried to look past that and say, I like baseball. I, I feel the same way about our, our society. Like, I, I don't want to talk about the finger pointing as much in my own life. Uh, mm-hmm. As much as, like, I want America to be a great place. I do think America's headed in a kind of, not, not the wrong direction, but I think that America's headed in, a, in an unsustainable direction. And I'm forever kind of curious about how it, we ebb that tide and, and create the next chapter of um, hope. Well, exactly. And I think, you know, we, we need to uh, basically worry about the fact that 53% of, of women voted for Trump last time, I mean, of, of, of white women voted for Trump. Um, you know, what are the policies that are going to ch- get people to come out to vote this next election? And what are the specific things that we have, you know, the Democratic Party And, and, and what Party do you think? Offer. As an economist, where do, what do you think the message needs to be? I think it needs to be very basic uh, proposals to clean up the health care system, uh, to have tax justice so that you have billionaires paying their fair share, to have a program that's going to address the climate change issue, uh, and uh, to, to clean up the banks and, and Wall Street and to get tough on those. And to that, clean up all of that stuff, you need, I would think, proper oversight coming from elected officials. Yes. Well, it would be helpful to have campaign finance reform. and a, There's a long wish list, but I'm just talking about the core bread and butter issues that are going to be getting Americans to vote and to have to see a difference between the different parties right. um, you know, on Election Day. And I'm not a Democrat. I'm an independent. So I'm, I'm just saying that what would get me to the polls if I had a party that would respond to the most important crises that this world is facing? And these are issues that we can't postpone. Okay, well, I mean, that's, that's uh, very profound. I mean, that's, and, and so I'm now going to ask you another question, which is your work now, you're working in, in uh, tax justice reform. Your work in, in I guess, the criminality of the, of the kleptocracies of the world. Where are you putting your energy now? Where, where are you going to be? Uh, well, the focus I have at the course, um, I'm, I'm trying to get students involved in these issues like my generation was. We grew up in the 60s. We were engaged in international issues automatically because you couldn't ignore the fact that there was war and racism going on in the society. So this generation of students much more worried about paying the college loans back and you know f- facing a, a pretty grim outlook for uh, issues like climate change. But I think focusing on issues that are not just uh, 
problems that can be solved within any particular country. They're what we call global justice problems. The issue of taxation, the issue of climate change, uh, the issue of health care and right. drugs. But, but, but while that's going on, and this might be a false narrative, yeah. but, but you know, you see the rise of dictators, the rise of strongmen, the rise. Right now, it feels like we are headed towards a collision of some kind. Well, we've seen democracy under threat all over the planet, and it's uh, really pretty organized. I mean, we're seeing this month, Steve Bannon has been working with right-wing groups in Europe. Uh, there's a very important parliamentary election at the end of May uh, for the EU parliament. And there's very and we, disturbing and we, got signs this, and we got through this whole hour without talking about Brexit. And yeah, and well, Brexit is, you know, is, 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 is a problem. But the biggest problems are on the continent, where you have uh, Le Pen's party may take 30% of the vote in France in May. Uh, you have the right taking 20% in uh, Netherlands just last month. You know, there's a big surge in the right wing in Germany right now. And so, you know, there's, I would call it nothing less than a kind of neo-fascist uh, movement. Right. And, and, and it's funny, you, you mentioned how we might be becoming an oligarchy. I, I started saying to myself that America's becoming corporate fascist, like that we are kind of corporate fascist republic. Well, you look at Brazil, for example, they've just gone to the right. You know, mm -hmm. you, know you see the, the big swings uh, in Europe going on. Turkey is another example. And of course, Russia in the form of Soviet Union. The, these are all places that are not friendly to democracy. And is it dark and naive to say that the only way to ebb that is through revolution? No, I think if you look at, I've spent a lot of time in South Africa recently and uh, been teaching there as well. That's a country where you saw a really bad president get hold of power and the society kind of came together. The journalists got it busy and they did a lot of investigative reporting and they basically have tossed this guy out. They're not out of the woods yet, but it's made a lot of progress. And so, so that's, a, that's a case of a democracy turning itself around. And, and saying, the need for the fourth estate. You need the fourth estate. You need whistleblowers. You need, uh, you know, I think uh, journalism has to take, you know. In, in, in 1989, we had 40,000 reporters and correspondents in this country. Today, we have 18,000. So that's going in the wrong direction. We've had a, a radical... Uh, gutting of the of the journalism industry and the, so the economic basis of journalism has become much more difficult and, and did that have to again go to like reaganism and like the 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 basic idea i think of, you know journalism has been uh, affected by the changes in competitiveness the internet but, and the but rise like in the also. 80s when deregulation was happening all of a sudden you started seeing the big animals eat each other doesn't yeah, it you saw a lot of small papers independent papers yeah. disappear and you saw the rise of cable news and fox news and murdoch and that empire basically putting a lot of independent voices out of business and i think you know somehow we have to need we have to rebuild the the critical infrastructure that we need the fourth estate is vital to the democracy and that's another challenge that we have Wow, a lot of challenges. Amazing conversation. We never even spoke about why you're in Sag Harbor. <laughs> I moved out here 30 years ago to write a book, and I'm still writing it. So. Uh, there you go. You and me both, man. That's, that's awesome. Well, uh, you've been listening to Sundays on the East End. Uh, this is Alex Socolow. My guest today, James Henry, thank you so much for this conversation. Well. Bridget, please come back and help me uh, actually stay on track. Thank you all, and uh, everybody have a, a good week. Be well and stay well.